Our text for this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 30, the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Father will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, it's good to be in your presence this morning. We are thankful for your word, and we, we ask you now that you would speak to us through your word. That you open the eyes of our hearts, that you open our minds to understand, to rejoice in, to savor to need what you have for us. And that you continue, Lord, to shape us and mold us as your people, that we would shine brightly in this dark and perverted generation that you've set us among. So bless this time, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I just have to say right off, it is good to be back. I've been a bit of a traveling roadshow preacher for the last month and a half. I was almost afraid I was going to forget where I was. Like, eh, it's going to be back in Cleveland. Love Cleveland. Oh, it's Yakima. Yakima. All right, yeah. um, I've been preaching a bunch of different places, basically to sub for uh, friends who are uh, taking a break during the summertime. And so that's just kind of the norm for me now. And also gives us a chance to talk about uh, acts wherever we go. But it's really good to be back. I've missed you all. Um, so we've got a, we've got a big passage before us that I'm going to narrow down to basically the first uh, six or so verses there. Um, but what, what struck me as we go into this is that in studying this passage, how much of this letter reads like a farewell from Paul to the Philippians? And it's a letter of encouragement, it's a letter exhorting them to joy, it's, it's assuring them that Paul's doing okay. But there is also this note of Paul getting ready to hand things off. We saw back in chapter 1, he wasn't sure how things were going to turn out for him in prison, whether he was going to survive this or whether he was going to die in prison or what. But even if, we, even if he did survive prison, we know from his other writings that he had plans. Um, 
in his letter to the Roman church. He shared that his ambition was to preach the gospel wherever it hadn't been heard. And a little bit later on added that he already had his eye on Spain. So even though he mentions that he hoped to see the Philippian church again, it wouldn't be for an extended period of time, most likely. So in other words, Paul was preparing them to live without him. Time for them now to stand on their own two feet and to put into play what they've learned from him. This, this kind of transitional moment really happens to all of us. Uh, one that stood out when I was in college as part of a, uh, a campus ministry called Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And great. At that time, really good program. Um, great people, learned a lot, challenged a lot, great fellowship. Just, it just felt like home. Uh, and then something happened the next year. All these people that had really shaped and, and populated my experience in FCA that, that first time around had graduated. I was a little bit offended. It's like, how dare they? Not now what? This isn't going to be fun anymore. This is going to be enjoyable. All the cool people are gone. What's going to happen to this ministry? It's just going to fall apart. And somewhere fairly early on, I don't know, I don't know if it was something the leader said or if it's something that just kind of landed on me. It's like, oh, that's not new. That happens virtually every year. People leave school. Novel concept. People don't stay there forever. And, and at some point, it's going to be up to the rest of us who remain behind to fill their place. No one really asked us if I was okay about that or prepared us for that. It just happened. But there we were. But it was, a, it was an unsettling transition because I, I counted on them. I depended on them. I missed them. Um, and now it was up to me. And, and that, that also brought its own feels with it because it was easy at that point to say, but I'm not like them at all. They had it all together. They had it all figured out. They were matured and thoughtful and, you know, not spastic like, like us. And, but then as, as time went on, I realized they, were, they went through the same process that we did. They, they had that same moment where someone before them had kind of set the stage and made made that ministry what it was for them. In fact, a lot of what they worked out of, how they led and shaped that ministry, was from the people that went before them and before them as well. There's just this progression of handing off, of transitions all along the way. I mean, like I said, I think we all face these kinds of things, whether it's a, a ministry trans, transition in, in school or when a person graduates from some sort of education or training, I mean, whether you graduate from high school or college or whatever, now, now it's all real. Now you have to do something with what you've learned. When a child leaves home, one of the things that, that our ministry in particular is focused on is, is helping young people make that transition from living in, you know, living with their parents, you know, hopefully in a Christian family, being raised in the church, to actually making that their own. But, but oftentimes they're not ready for that. They don't know how to do that. It's hard. It's difficult. Someone hid the instructions. Or, or when we have someone in our life who's important, uh, influential, and they leave or they die. If you've lost a parent, you, you know that, that void of, okay, now what? Who's going to take care of all the things they took care of? Who's going to do all the things, occupy the role, act in the way, fill that spot in the way that they did? I guess it's our turn. I guess it's my turn. It'd be scary and disorienting. We're, 
our youngest is going through swimming lessons. I was thinking about this the other day, um, you know, watching the, the youngest of the kids learning how to backflow. And the teachers are great because they, they start them off, tell them, you know, here's what you do. Put your chin up, stick your, your chest out, you know, arch your back a little bit and float. And all, I got you. And about halfway across the pool, they pull their arms away so that, that they actually come to find out they can do what they think they can't. If they knew what was happening that moment, you know what would happen. It would be like a cat in a pool. It would just be like, you know, arms and legs everywhere, panicking, inhaling water. But, but, but at some point, the purpose of that instruction is exactly that. You have to learn how to swim. You have to learn how to do this. I can't spend the rest of my life carrying you through the pool on your back. You have to learn. That's why you're here. But that transition is scary. It's hard. What if something goes wrong? What if I fail? I don't know what to do. Lots, lots of emotions like that. Think, and think about that with regards to Philippi. Imagine what Paul must have meant to that church. Seems like he at least spent a few months' time with them, but that's, that's day in and day out time with a small church. Imagine that. Imagine a church that could count on every Sunday. Here's Paul, whether Paul's preaching or just in the congregation. Imagine the fellowship afterwards. Imagine the Sunday schools. Imagine the home fellowships. Imagine all the different ways in which Paul was a part of their life. And, and not, just, not just, you know, here's Paul, but, but here's Paul. He's an apostle. Good grief. He's, he's seen Jesus. He's talked to Jesus. He's, ta he's been taught by Jesus himself. And he knows the apostles. He knows all the people in the early church. He is connected to the very roots of, of who we are as Christians. Sorry, in the flow here, I've changed my notes. There we go. Here's someone who's, who's well-connected all over um, the empire, someone who's planted churches, who's preached the gospel in places like Athens. I mean, Athens, it's a big place. And Ephesus, these are huge cities, huge influential places in the Roman Empire at that time. Like Paul's gone places. He's gone to New York. He's gone to L.A. Not actually. I'm just kind of translating into how we would think of it. But he's been to those places. He's somebody, and he's our somebody. He's done miracles. Paul, that Paul's been with us. Imagine all, all the, the education and experience and just wisdom that he's gained over all this life that we have at our fingertips. If you have questions about, you know, if you wanted to go get pre-marriage counseling, who would you go to in your church at that time? You'd probably go to Paul who hadn't been married over a couple who'd been married 40 years. But, you know, ask Jesus, what do we do? And then he's saying, he's moving on. There's a, there's a point coming where you're going to have to do this on your own. You have to swim on your own. You have to live without me. I'm not going to be there much longer to carry you like this. Not because I don't care, but, but God's got other things for me. So I need to move on. I think that, that tone overall is, is really important to how we read this passage. And something... You know, it's not only something that we have faced, but what we will face. It's unavoidable. Because in this life, none of us lives forever. Craig's going to be gone one day. 
I'm going to be gone one day. The people that you rely on, the ministries that you rely on, many will fade away. Then what? Are you only going to flail in the water, gasping for breath, or are you prepared to face those moments and be ready to take on whatever's next, to apply what you've been given, to take those first faltering steps? But not only do we not live forever, God doesn't always keep us in the same place. We all have stories. Very few of us are actually here from Yakima to begin with. <laughs> We've come from other places. But also, I mean, just the fact of it is, if we're never put in a position to make our own decisions, take responsibility for our own lives, to try and fail on our own, what can we really learn? It's not just unavoidable, it's necessary that we go through these transitions. Otherwise, we just become these stunted adult children who have learned and gained lots of things but don't know what to do with it. The only way we grow is by applying what we've been given. And so, so in one sense, in the, in the kindness of God's providence, he brings these transitions to our ways. So although they are hard, they're also good and necessary. So that's the setup, I think, for how we should read this passage. And let's look at how Paul wrote to them. First thing, right off the bat, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's a well-known passage. It's safe to say, I think, in this group that we know what it doesn't mean. Paul is not telling the Philippians that you need to do what you can to save yourselves. Get busy, because who knows? Get to work, do good, do better, and everything will go great. That's, that's not what Paul is saying at all. But we know, if we've read Paul at all, we know that that's not the theme of his ministry at all. So what does he mean? I think this is, this is the handoff. It's time for you to work out your salvation, to understand the contours of what it means to be a Christian, to understand what it means to believe in God, to know God, to love God, to take this, this knowledge that's up here and put it into play in your life. You need to start working this out. The church needs you to start working this out. It's time for you to start applying all that I've given to you. Make it your own and to do what's necessary to grow. You need to be responsible, take responsibility for this, as well as to work out what God would have you to do. How do we do that? And Paul, Paul doesn't say any more than that there. He just says that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Stop. How? How do we do that? I think a safe place for us to start would be where, where the early church started. If you want, you can turn over to Acts 2.42, but I'll just, I can just tell you, they, they devoted themselves, and that word is important to begin with, they devoted themselves. They, they didn't dabble in, but this is, this is our focus. We are going to do these four things. First, we're going to study the teachings of the apostles, and the apostles are taking both the words of Christ and the Old Testament, putting that together. This is who God is, and this is what he requires of us. Let's study that. Let's know that. Let's learn that. Let's wrestle with that. Let's apply that. The early church devoted themselves to that. They also devoted themselves to fellowship, which I think is an interesting balance to the first one, because it keeps the individuals who are trying to grow in Christ from becoming ingrown rather than doing this as a community. 
I think it's an it's a important note for us today because a lot of what I see in terms of devotional habits are inwardly focused only. I am building myself up to be a solid, good Christian, and these other people in the church get in my way. They frustrate me. They make me angry. Ugh, I'm trying to learn about forgiveness and grace, and these people, ugh, what's wrong with them? Why can't we have a healthy church? Where, where that's actually, <laughs> that's, that's a lab in which you apply what you learn. And it comes ready-made with all sorts of ways to apply it, doesn't it? They devote themselves to the breaking of bread. And I, I take that to mean the celebration of the sacraments, particularly of the Lord's Supper. The reminder of God's covenant with us through Christ. I don't know if you're new to that understanding of, of, of the Lord's Supper. I was raised in a church where this was, was primarily couched in terms of remember what Jesus did. Or, or some sort of pledge of allegiance for Christians to make. But it's more than that. It's the promises of Christ through history stretching to us saying, this is my body broken for you, insert name, right now. This is my blood which has been shed for the forgiveness of your sins. That's why we could confess our sins this morning with hope. Christ's body, Christ's blood was shed for us, for you, for me. That daily, that devotion to that regular practice, gathering together as a church to remember and applying the, the covenants, promises of Christ is vital to the life of a Christian. And they devote themselves to prayer. Prayer for themselves, prayer for each other, and certainly for the, for the situation at large they found themselves in. Give us boldness to preach the gospel. These people need to hear Protect us, Lord. Give us strength in the face of opposition. Unite us. Bring more. I think, I think those are good places for us to start in terms of sounding out. How, how do we do this? I'd also add that our efforts need to be guided by certain principles or aims. This, this, this is, again, having in mind this idea of the transition. First and foremost, our aim in all of these things, in, in, in working out our salvation, our aim is not simply to be an expert on all things Christian. This is not a knowledge accumulation project or a trivia accumulation project. This is not about answering all those arcane questions that come up with regards to Scripture. This is coming to know God himself. And it's a distinction that's, that's easy to say, but hard to distinguish. There are many Christians who know lots of things about God, but don't know God. They know what they're supposed to do, but they don't understand why. They just know that's right. But they don't know God in such a way, or Jesus in such a way, that they do it because they know him. That obedience is not just something that Christians do, but that Christians should want to do because, good grief, look what he's given us. Look what kind of a God he is. So, so the aim in all this is not just knowing about, but knowing and loving and cherishing and being astounded by God himself, not simply the facts about God. Do you know God like that? You know Christ like that. When you pray, when you worship, have you made that transition? I think that's hardest for kids who are raised in Christian families because all you hear, you get all the framework and all the superstructure, but that's the point where it's like, okay, now do you know him? Do you love him? And that's where we see a lot of kids falter. 
That's the transition that we have to make. Those are the questions that we have to ask ourselves. Next, our purpose should also be to have our mind and heart transformed by exposing our thoughts, perspectives, beliefs, and values to the Word of God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The starting premise is that our thinking and our perspectives and our values are whack. We think like worldly people. That's, that's not shameful. That just is. We think like the world. Which, which is that we don't think much about God, that God doesn't factor into how we think, that we don't now normally think in terms of what glorifies God or what's right in his eyes. We think in terms of what's right and what's wrong. That's worldly. But, but the God that we serve just fills the space to bursting if we read our Old Testaments. He's everywhere. He's incredible. He is good. He has come for us to redeem us, to be his children. And that should shape everything else as we look at the world. This is what's valuable. This is what's wise. This is what's desirable. This is what's good. And then finally, our purpose should then be to learn how to best serve God with our lives and our abilities and our resources. To know God to be transformed in our thinking, in our perspectives, in our lives by his word. And then what do we do with this life that he's given us? It's a whole reorienting that needs to go on. And it's by no means quick. It's not something that you can do on a Sunday afternoon. This is the work. This is what we're working out in terms of our salvation. This is what we're trying to get a hold of and grasp. So what about this fear and trembling part? We might, we might relate to the first because that fits with kind of our, our, a worldly understanding of how spirituality works. Work out your salvation. Yeah, right. I got it. I got to do good. Okay, we've, we already dealt with that part. But then we get to the fear and trembling part, which brings all sorts of feels with it as well. What, what are we afraid of? Where, what is the object of the fear and trembling there? Well, again, I think, I think it's... I think we can... We, we know here, I hope we know this, that what Paul isn't saying is, y'all better not screw this up or else the hammer will fall. Get this right. Mind your P's and Q's. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I, I think this ties into what he was saying earlier about humility. But, but so touch that in a moment. But, but first, it definitely means that you need to take this command seriously. Working out your own salvation cannot be optional for you. This is the work of your life. You need to devote yourself to this. This is something that we as Christians must do both for our own sake and for the sake of others. And even though it will not be easy, you have to learn how to discipline yourself and stand firm and resist those things within you that would want to give up or give in or do this on a part-time basis. This has to be the course of your life. You have to grow as a Christian. You have to pursue growth as a Christian. You can't do this on a part-time basis. You are fooling yourself, deceiving yourself, if you think so. If you profess Christ as Lord, then this is the course that you must pursue, period. 
So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But also, you need to remain humble in this. Pride is a constant danger for every one of us and incredibly destructive. It's instructive internally. It's instructive in community. Humility, in this case, means accepting the fact, first of all, that each of us, beginning with ourselves, has a ton to learn. It doesn't matter how old we are, how much experience, what kind of education, etc. We're going to out your salvation with fear and trembling because you don't know as much as you think you know, and you don't know as much as you need to know. And that's okay. It's not put down. That's a fact. And pride keeps us from embracing that because I went to seminary, or I've lived 50, 60 years, or I've experienced all these different things, or I've suffered for the sake of Christ, or I've actually done some good things in the name of Christ. You don't need to tell me what I need to learn. I already know, because I'm smart. I'm American, or whatever. Um, but, but the humble course is to say, yeah, I know a lot for my little six-foot circle of space and time, but there's a lot of knowledge and there's a lot of wisdom out there that I am clueless about that I should probably shut my mouth and listen more than speak. There's a lot that I need to learn. If any of you have traveled overseas, you've seen that, right? You realize that, that wisdom comes in a lot of different shades and varieties than, than what you get here. There's actually a lot of different perspectives that we benefit from that we just can't see because we're so bound by our own culture and our own experiences. It's good for us to acknowledge that. It's not shameful. It's not embarrassing. It's just what it is. And that, so humility begins with accepting that fact. Also means accepting the fact that there are things that each of us will be wrong about. Maybe even things, God forbid, maybe even things that right now you're absolutely convinced, passionate about. I know what I know on this, and I'm right. And anybody who challenges me is going to get a fight from me. Unless you're wrong. Do you have that kind of humility to, to maybe recognize or acknowledge that there are things that you might really know, been raised with knowing, whatever, that might be completely off about God, about what it means to serve Him, about various truths, doctrines of Scripture. Oh, I got that wrong. Or I had this, I had this placed up on this shelf that nobody can touch, when actually there, it's not quite as clear-cut as that, and maybe there can be different perspectives that I don't like, but I have to accept. That, that takes humility to accept that. But also means letting others learn at their own pace. Because isn't it our tendency when we set ourselves to something, especially something as important as discipleship, that it doesn't take long for us to start looking around? How's David doing on this? Well, I'm reading a lot. What's David reading? David's, not, David's reading comic books. What's up with that? I guess he's not serious about the Lord, right? What kind of music do they listen to? Where do they go to church? Or how, you know, they're devoting X number of hours to, to prayer. They're, they're doing these things in the community. Or they're getting together. They're inviting people over to the house every night for the purpose of sharing the gospel. What am I doing? We just begin this comparison thing rather than, I think, understanding humility in terms of letting other people learn and progress at their own pace, we don't all start at the same place. It's not, discipleship is not this homogenous experience. It's varied because we're varied. 
We come from different backgrounds, and that matters. Some of you have come from good church backgrounds. Some of you have not come from good church backgrounds. Some of you have come from no church backgrounds at all. So when you talk about church, there's already a variety, a spectrum of opinions and beliefs and convictions and feelings about church, right? So would you yell at the people who don't agree with me at that moment? Do we condemn them as lesser disciples because they're not caught up with us? Or do we have the humility to recognize that people move at different paces and start at different places and take different roads of growth? Some of us listen to the Lord well. The rest of us fight it, right? How many can describe the Lord's leading at times in terms of being dragged kicking and screaming by God? We would wish it would be otherwise. That God would say, this is the way it is. This is what I called you to. And we say, yes, Lord, of course, Lord. Happy to. Where it's more like Peter. By no means. Are you crazy, God? What have I done to deserve this? But, but we, we approach that road or we walk down that road differently. And each of us has different combinations of skills and passions, perspectives, etc. Each of us has a different, unique calling from God. But underlying all this, and Paul's emphatic about this in Romans, the end of Romans, that each one of us ultimately will answer to God. So the end of this thought about working out your salvation with fear and trembling is that you are accountable for what you do with what God's given you. Uh, this week... Um, started meeting with a couple for pre-marriage counseling. I've had the opportunity over the years to, to do this quite a few times, so, so I've got some experience in my background. Um, with, with this, I used to assign books to read. You know, let's read. Let's read a Piper book or Keller book or you know, whatever book. What, what kept coming up was, okay, I agreed with some of the things in the book, but I just can't be John and Noel Piper. I can't be Tim and Kathy Keller. I can't be this family or that family. And, and, and the focus is on, I've got to, I'm understanding this. I want to be a godly husband. I want to be a godly life, wife, but I can't be them. And, and so I finally decided I'm just not going to give the books yet without kind of talking about that. It's okay. They are not the only godly marriage, or example of godly marriage. And, and even then, they, they might be a great example for 20th, 21st century America at this point. But what do you do in other contexts? But also, constitutionally, you're just different. I don't know if you've met or, or, or know anything about John Piper. He's a quirky dude. Great brother, really godly man. But, but, but a bit of an oddball as well. Um, I mean, game respects game at that point, but, but you are not called to be somebody else, and, and somebody else is not called to be you. You've got to sort out how God's made you, what strengths, what weaknesses, what struggles, what passions God has worked into you, and figure out what that looks like before God, how you will follow there's a lot of pressure I see within the church to all be the same, and I think that's not helpful because it excludes people who don't, who don't fit that exactly. 
And I think we have to be, be both careful of with other people, but also just be willing to accept ourselves. We're different from each other. Our family makeups are different. Our relationships are different. And what, what a godly family looks like is going to differ in some respects from one to the other, although the principles remain the same. So fear and trembling, humility, take this seriously, take this humbly. And finally, I think, I think most, well, most importantly as we work our way through this, is that finally we engage in this work with the full assurance of God's help in the two most critical areas, our will and our ability. God is at work in you both to will. That's really the hard part, right? We can set ourselves up a good plan of what it means to follow Christ, but then the problem is, well, man, bed sure feels good. You know, I, I, I know this is the right thing to do, but I've got a, a whole slate of shows I want to binge right now. Master Chef is calling my name. Or I'd rather do this, or I'd rather do that, or I'd rather not say no to the things I know I need to say no to. Or I need to deal with sin that I, deep down I understand. I actually want around more than I want to get rid of it because it's right. But God gives us this assurance that he is presently and continuously at work to change our desires. Our desires are flawed. But God is working on that. That's huge. And if you've lived long enough as a Christian, you, you can start to see that transformation, can't you? You are a different person in terms of what you desire with regard to God now than, than when you started. God did that. That's super encouraging to see because somehow, some way, he does that. I don't know how. I don't understand it exactly. But he is at work transforming us. And he's also working on our ability to do so, to be faithful, to pursue those things. So just, just pop quiz right here. How many people struggle with praying on a regular basis? Will and ability, right? Whose assurance do you have to help you with that? God himself. Does God want you to pray? Yes. Is he disappointed that you don't pray two or three hours a day like Luther did? No. He loves you, not because of how you pray. He loves you for the sake of Christ. But he knows that in order for you to grow closer to him, you need to learn how to pray to him and depend on him in prayer and enjoy fellowshipping with him in prayer. And so he's at work in you as you also are working on these things. That's huge. This is not you learning how to run fast enough for God to be happy with you. This is taking what he's given you, knowing that he is there every step along the way. I'm going to make sure you get there. So the end is certain, even though right now you feel discouraged. It's encouragement to keep going rather than saying, ah, just I'll never be good at prayer. I'll never be good at sharing the gospel with people. I'll never be good at confessing sins. I'll never be good at any of that stuff. This is the encouragement to keep at it. As bad as you may be, God is at work in you to transform you, to help you be successful in those things that he's called us to. That's huge. That's huge. Okay, so work out your faith. That's the first thing he says. Second thing, do everything without grumbling or disputing or grumbling and questioning. This brings us back to really where this chapter started, doesn't it? How we live together as a church matters. 
there's any fellowship in the spirit, there's all, you know, be humble, treat others better than yourself, that same kind of thing. And obviously he has to bring it up because this is a constant problem among people. Whether in Philippi or Corinth or Rome or anywhere else, grumbling and disputing or questioning are issues because we are not yet who we are meant to be. We want things our way. That's why we grumble, isn't it? This sermon isn't what I was looking for this morning. Church is too hot, too cold, too big, too small, too empty, too full, too reformed, not reformed enough, too liturgical, not liturgical enough, not in the right place, not at the right time. Well, all, all grumbling comes from a desire to have my needs met, period. And it's just the air we breathe. How was your breakfast this morning? <laughs> Mine was great, by the way, but... But, but that's, that has to stop. And, and questioning or debating. We, we want things. We think things should be a certain way, and they're not. And so we get frustrated. And we challenge this, and it just builds and builds and builds. What does it do to the church? It destroys it. And Paul says, that, the reason why I'm bringing this up, the reason why I'm saying this here is not just that you should be thankful instead of grumbling, but you've been called to something here that this, this church is vital to. God has set you in this perverse and corrupt generation as light. What does a grumbling, complaining church have to offer the world? Not much. They already know how to do that. Thank you very much. And there's nothing different. Why go to church when I can grumble and complain at home? Or at work or wherever else? It's not distinct. But we're set as lights in the world. What's that? It means two things. It means on the one hand that God requires us to be distinct from the world, distinct from this crooked and twisted generation, not like it. So working out our salvation must include reflecting the character of God, showing the glory of God and the beauty of reverent and humble and obedient and godly lives. Do you know what convinces people and compels people about the faith? It's not a good logical argument, but people who really seem to believe what they say they believe. who can be in this moment faced with you know, all, all the challenges and fears and whatever of COVID and say, you know what? I'm not afraid, I'm not discouraged because I know God's got us and I'm looking at this as an opportunity to share Christ with others. Or Paul, I'm in prison and I can be bummed about this, I'd be angry about this because it's not right, but I see this as an opportunity to glorify God by sharing the gospel with my captors. I hope I get a longer time in prison because there's more prison guards who haven't heard about Christ. I'm good. That's what compels people. To know God and to see the world differently because of that knowledge and, and relationship to God. That's what compels them. Showing the glory of God and the beauty of reverent and humble and obedient and godly lives. Showing that a life centered on God is qualitatively better. Not that we're richer or healthier, but we know what it is to live with peace and assurance and that, that lightness of soul that comes from knowing that we are forgiven even though we are sinful. Which is why we must humbly live with each other. As I said, if we grumble and dispute with each other, we show ourselves to be no different than the world. 
but also means that God has sent us into this same world as witnesses to the light. So we're, we're, to be, we're to be distinct from the world, but not apart from the world. We're sent into the world. We're not to look at this perverse and crooked generation and say, get away from me. We're look at this perverse and crooked generation and say, that's where God's sending us. And not because it's good for us, or not because God is God and he gets to do, tell us whatever we, he wants us to do and we have to do it, but again, because as we grow closer to God, we start to gain something of his love and compassion and mercy and pity for the lost. God does not delight in the death of sinners. There are a lot of Christians who do. God does not delight in the death of the sinners, but desires that all would repent and come to knowledge of faith. There are many Christians who are indifferent to that. Something needs to be transformed where we love the lost as God says he loves the lost and as Jesus loved the lost. Remember, remember Jesus was dining at the, having dinner at the house of one of the Pharisees and a prostitute came in and started wiping his feet. It's like, oh, prostitute, gross, sinner, get her out of here. Jesus, do you know who this woman is? If Jesus knew who she was, she'd be out the door right away. Jesus, Jesus loved her. Jesus did know who she was and knew her more than just her occupation. He saw her as someone who was lost, who's empty, who's hurting, who's destined for destruction, and showed mercy to her because he loved her. That's one of the things that we should be working on in our own salvation. Do we understand that kind of love? Do we share that kind of love? If we're to be lights to the world, we're going to have to learn to be other-focused, to, to desire, sincerely desire others to know the love and the comfort and the promises of God that we've received and not be offended not be surprised, not be afraid of the darkness that we find out there. We know why that's there. But that's what we're sent into, isn't it? Shine as lights among a dark and perverse generation. That's where we're sent. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling because you are set as lights in this dark perverse generation. And you're going to have to do this without me there. You're going to have to learn how to do this yourself. And then lastly, he says, hold fast. Hold fast to the word of life. You are going to be pressured and tempted and pushed and pressed and pulled and threatened in all kinds of ways to loosen your hold on the word of Christ, the teaching, clearly, but also, he says, the word of life, the living word, Christ himself. Teenagers know what that's like. That's the life of a teenage Christian, isn't it? And a college-age Christian. I know what I should believe about Christ, but there's all these other things going on. What do I do? 
If you remember back to those days, it was hard. But that's not just at college age. That's, that's as we grow older, too. There's just new things that replace, you know, sex and drink and drugs and having fun and blah, blah, blah. We just have adult forms of those that likewise tempt us and pressure us to loosen our hold, whether that's to compromise or to diminish the, the, the value that, that God has in our life, Christ has in our life, to be ashamed of him before others, even if we're falsely accused, or to hold fast. Hold fast, not just to the teachings of Jesus, to not just the right doctrine, but to Christ himself. That really is, when you think about it, at the end of it, that's the sum of discipleship. Holding fast to Christ. Seeing that that's all you really have at the end of the day. You can have education, you can have money, you can have a good family, you can have a great church, you, you can have everything can be lined up in this life, but you know, or you will have come to find out at some point that all that can be erased in a moment, can it? But not Jesus. He is our hope. He's our foundation. He is our author of our faith. He is the perfecter of our faith. He is all. If you don't hold fast to him, you won't hold fast to anything. But that's the aim in all of this. We draw close to Christ. So, I think we see in this passage that, that Philippi is not any different than us. Same situation. We, have, we, have, we do have guides, we do have teachers, we do have preachers. But, but there's a lot of stuff that we're on our own. We're already still starting to feel it. We need to figure out what this looks like in marriage and family. There's new stuff coming all the time in our lives. At some point here, I'm going to have to get ready to be a dad of a son and daughter-in-law or a daughter and son-in-law. How on earth do I do that? My dad's gone. I'm going to have to work that out. I have to gain wisdom, gain understanding, seek God. That'd be a good father-in-law. And you know, the day's coming faster than I, I maybe like, but someday maybe being a grandfather. I'm just a kid still. Come on. But my exhortation to you is what Paul says here. Work out your salvation, your own salvation with fear and trembling. What has God called you to? How has God made you? What do you need to work on? Pursue that. Now's the time to pick it up and go after it. With full intent, with whole heart, to know him, to love him, to, to, to understand our calling as a church. St. Andrews, we've been set as light in a dark and perverse neighborhood. <laughs> Why? China's light. To tell them about Christ, to bring hope, to show them something else, to love them. And, and lastly, let's hold fast to Christ. That, that's, at the end, all we've got and everything we need. So let's pursue him together, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, stir us up to what you've called us to. Whatever or fears hold us back, whatever doubts about ourselves, 
whatever other pressures we feel or simply just the desire not to miss out on what the world has to offer. May we hear your voice through this passage today saying, now is the time to follow me or not. No more games. It's time to make the transition where we seek you on our own, where we seek to make you our own, where we seek to take what you've given us and submit it to you, that we might live fully for your glory the rest of our lives, that we would shine with a pure light in a dark and perverse world, that they would be drawn to you, that we would not be afraid, that we would not be ashamed, that we would not lose heart because we hold fast to you. Lord, give us strength. Work on our wills. Please transform us by any means possible, Lord, that we might cling to these things and devote ourselves to these things to our last breath, that you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.